The first talk that we're going to deal with today is uh, really revolving around the aspect, I think, largely of historical theology, and that's pretty typical of our meetings. Uh, our meetings, the first talk is usually a, a practical theo- uh, theological talk or something dealing with historical theology, and then the second one is one of the brothers picks up a chapter of the Confession of Faith and specifically deals with systematic theology or some sort of aspect of doctrine. And I wouldn't be living up to the name of a Reformed Baptist if I didn't open up my talk today with a quote from Spurgeon, would I? So the title of my talk today is Particular Baptists' Valuable Contribution to Reformed Covenant Theology. Particular Baptists' Valuable Contribution to Reformed Covenant Theology. C.H. Spurgeon is recorded as saying, The doctrine of the divine covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. I am persuaded, Spurgeon continues to say, that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon the fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and of grace, end quote. Today, my talk is not going to be seeking to prove the validity of covenant theology. So I'm not coming at it from a, like a polemical standpoint to say this is why covenant theology is true and here's all the proof. Uh, I could go through the scriptures. I could go through church history, uh, even as far back as the patristic era, and we could trace how covenant theology was used by church fathers interpreting the Bible correctly. We could see how in the Reformation, the post-Reformation scholastic era, how it was refined and better fine-tuned. But but that's not the purpose of my talk. Um, Additionally, the purpose of this talk isn't necessarily to critique other systems, commonly known as dispensationalism, or take the two and compare them with one another to demonstrate in your minds which one is better than the other. Even though I will be doing some analyzing of those two frameworks, those two hermeneutics of interpreting Scripture, I will be doing that. But that's not the main intent of the talk. Um, admitting that such, I'm going to be speaking about these two different systems of theology, one known as covenant theology, which we'll define in a little bit more uh, definition here in a moment, and dispensationalism. I'm going to be speaking to them in, in largely broad categories, broad terms. And I want to be faithful in representing them because I know they're held sincerely by uh, Christians who believe they're sincerely, rightly dividing the Word of God. And, and I never want to you know, come across as I'm misrepresenting people who sincerely hold those systems. But I will be speaking about them in general uh, ways. I know there's nuances in those systems, but my referencing to them will be done in such a way that I think every honest person would agree that those are the main overarching principles of those systems and help to prove my point. So how do I propose that we move forward with the topic at hand? The particular Baptist valuable contributions to Reformed theology. Well, as I told my wife, I feel very uncomfortable with how I'm approaching this talk. Uh, And I'm going to approach it unlike anything I've ever done before. And I'm going to communicate this truth of the valuable contributions of our English particular Baptist to covenant theology through my own experience. My own experience of moving away from dispensationalism myself toward covenant theology. And then recognizing as I studied covenant theology, aha, I recognize the valuable contributions that the particular Baptist made 
to the already existing Reformed Covenant theology. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking, that, well, you know, Brother Doug, that sounds rather subjective. And in a way, it is. I admit that. But at the same time, what I'm going to share and the truths that I'm going to uh, elevate up out of my own experience are objective and can be substantially verified. So here we go. How are we going to start? I want to start off with something that happened at our church recently. Uh, this was just in the last couple of weeks. We had a visitor come through the door. And uh, this uh, visitor was in their 70s. According to their testimony, they've been in and part of the Christian church for over 40 years And I had not seen this visitor for over a year in our church. They visited with us for some time, about a year ago. I could be off on the time a little bit there. And they're there. And after the church meeting, this is what, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is kind of what was communicated to me by this visitor. Quote, the reason I never stuck around this first time, or the first time rather, when I visited Christ Reformed Baptist, was because of your talk of covenant theology. However, while I've been away this past year, the Lord, through various means, has convinced me of its truth. And so, the person said, I said to myself, Christ Reformed Baptist Church was right all along, so I'm back and here I am. I want to learn more. And then the person went on to say that after 40 years of being part of and around Baptist churches, they had never heard of anything such as covenant theology or the concepts of covenant theology Uh, to help them navigate through interpreting and handling the Word of God. And so allow me to ask you, can you relate with this person in any way? Can you relate with any of those sentiments in any way from this hoary head of spending years, decades in her case, in Baptist churches and never even hearing of the concepts of covenant theology, let alone the word, you know, or the phrase covenant theology? Well, brothers, I certainly can sympathize with that. Being converted in a Baptist church and being only acquainted with what is known as dispensationalism, upon learning the principles of covenant theology, I also immediately felt as though I had been horribly wrong all along about how the Bible's story properly fitted together and how God's redemptive history flowed all throughout the ages. How could have I been so misguided, I thought, when I first started hearing the concepts of covenant theology? Now, regarding dispensation of what I was acquainted with and the only thing that I knew, I'll never forget the first time that I heard, or not that I heard, but I had a, what I call, Holy Spirit red flag moment. And that's kind of one of the things where I may not know all of the theological language or the underlining construction of theology over something that's being said, but I know enough of the scriptures to know that something just doesn't sound right with what this person's teaching. Right? That's what I call a Holy Spirit red flag moment. The Holy Spirit's throwing a red flag on the field and saying, hey, what I've shown you in my word isn't lining up entirely with this. You need to search it. You need to investigate it a little more. This occurred while I was listening to a preacher describe from my home church how that in the end times, the Jews and the Gentiles were in some sense going to exist in different realms within the eschaton. And so he was attempting to articulate this. In other words, he was doing this because dispensationalism as a framework, as a hermeneutic of understanding redemptive history, it does have as one of its main overarching tenets the teaching that God has two people. He has the Old Testament people of Israel, his earthly people, and he has the New Testament people, his heavenly people, and that is the church. And in that system of theology, these are oftentimes maintained at a great antithesis to one another. One can never equal the other, or one can never be part of the other. And so, whether it was right or wrong, 
by this uh, preacher who was preaching this way within that dispensational framework, whether it was right or wrong, those principles you see of those two people, those two categories carried over into his understanding of the eschaton, and he still in some way was trying to maintain that distinction between Jew and Tile in the end times. Now, of course, this sort of distinction between Jew and Gentile immediately challenged what I, even as a young Christian, knew to be something that Paul abrogated in his epistles. For instance, in Ephesians 2, I thought to myself, what do I make of the things when Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, who some, we who sometimes were afar off, you Gentiles, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both one, referring there to the Jews and the Gentiles, and he has broken down the middle wall partition between us. How did what he was saying, this amplified distinction between Gentile, Gentile fit with that, that teaching of the Apostle Paul? You see, I was wrestling with this. Uh, later on in that same epistle in chapter uh, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says, Now therefore ye, you Gentiles, are no more strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. And he's referring to the Jews there. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What was I to do with passages like this that I was being confronted with? Uh, even we could go to Romans 10, 12, Colossians 3, 11 and 28, Galatians chapter 3. Well, this continued as I'm as a Christian trying to figure out the dynamics of the Bible. And brothers, just so you know, I'm going through the back door to get to the front door in this message, okay? Uh, we will get to the particular Baptists in a moment. Furthermore, what I started to notice was there was an uh, elevation of the modern state of Israel and the modern uh, people who are called Jews within dispensational type churches that I would go to visit, that would come and be guest preachers, things of that nature. And uh, this apple of God's eye was being really elevated, you know, almost to the degree that we were focusing more on them than we were the Church of Christ. And, and it just kind of was uneasy uh, with me. I recall going to one Baptist church and seeing actually a modern day Israeli flag hanging on the wall next to an American flag and a Christian flag, much like these right here. They, they would have had an Israeli flag. And I thought to myself, what's going on? Who are the people of God? This is an easy question. Why is it so complicated in Scripture? Is it, I thought to myself, true, like these dispensational teachers are communicating to me, that the purpose of Jesus Christ's first coming was to establish an earthly kingdom, and that if the Jews would have accepted that, then there would have been no need to gather in the Gentiles. The earthly kingdom would have started right then and there. But since the Jews rejected it, then God started and continues to grow the Christian church until He comes back to the business of fulfilling some unmetted, unmetted, <laughs> horrible English, uh, unmet obligations covenantly that He has with Abraham's descendants. Is this true? And if so, then how do I deal with passages like Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, where it says, he hath chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated un us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Those in Christ here, Paul's teaching, have eternally been the purpose of God's redemptive plan. Always. His church. How do I fit that in? That eternal scope, that eternal aspect, that eternal love that eternal purpose of the church with this theology that says, well, it's just for an intermittent 
intermediate period of time until God gets back to the Jews, so forth and so on. You see, there was just a lot of Holy Spirit red flags being thrown out. And believe me, brothers, I searched these things out with these dispensational teachers. I try to figure out in the Scriptures, uh, just to help you understand a little bit of the, my background, my framework uh, as a minister, at my ordination, uh, one of the most godly men who I love in the faith gave me a GI Schofield Bible, reference Bible, study Bible, and he said, Doug, this really is just, really, kind of what he was communicating to me was this is really the only tool you need to prepare, you know, for your sermons. And so you see, I I really wanted to know these things. I'm in my Schofield study Bible trying to find answers to these questions and these red flags that I had. But perhaps the most difficult aspect of the proposition of dispensation for me personally what began to lead me to search for other ways of understanding redemptive history, which would eventually lead me to covenant theology, was the proposition and the teaching that the church, that is all of those of faith who believed on the Messiah, uh, not his name, but on his person, and then in the new covenant, on his name and his person, all of those of the faith, they did not include Old Testament saints. They really didn't. The church, the church did never include the Old Testament saints. That was just the New Testament saints. And this was the most difficult aspect for me in light of scriptures like John 8.56 where Jesus says himself, your father Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. What's Jesus mean there then? If Abraham wasn't part of the church, if Abraham wasn't part of the family of the faith, what's that mean? Galatians 3.29, if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I, on the surface, without a, a degree in systematic theology, could read this and I could see that there's a unity to the family of faith in the Bible. I am going to be sitting at the great banquet of the Master on the last day with Abraham at the same feast. And so these things just, they troubled me. Well, years went by. I never felt as though I found a satisfactory answer to any of those questions or those concerns from teachers that employed a dispensational framework or a hermeneutic, which was used to interpret the scriptures. It always seemed to me they had to force the text to match their system, kind of forcing a a square peg in a round hole. In other words, what ought to be simple and straightforward biblical answers to questions such as who are God's people, how do they become God's people? How are they saved? What is their eternal destiny? These things that were plaguing me in my understanding, it often seemed unnecessary, unnecessarily complicated. Now we move to my introduction to covenant theology. It wasn't until I had been a Christian for nine years was I first introduced to a different framework or a different hermeneutic commonly called covenant theology. I was converted, I believe, in 2001. Um, and so, you know, nine years later, uh, this is around, you know, these, these are just guess time periods. I don't have all this stuff in a diary somewhere. But, you know, this is around 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Uh, I came across covenant theology around this time when someone introduced me to what is called commonly the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And upon just reading the Confession of Faith on its face value, not even beginning to dig a little bit and study its theology, I immediately recognized its accurate reflection of what I knew to be true just from reading my Bible. Um, It immediately began to remove some of the big red flags that I had uh, as I was, you know, contemplating how to dispensational 
evangelism answer these questions? Just reading on the surface, the confession of faith handled that. And finally, I thought to myself, I have a systematic theology that's coming up underneath what I already knew to be true in the Bible. So I had, a, to a great deal, biblical theology, and now I'm being introduced to a more structured way of understanding that biblical theology. And what I discovered is that this is witnessing just what I know to be true in the Bible. And I think that this is really a great benefit of how any Christian would begin to grow in their construction of what they believe about the Bible. Um, I know people have some different opinions about that. And we were talking about this last night at the fellowship is that, you know, being born again and just searching God's word, reading it, studying it, trying to understand it. You already know the, the major distinctions and contours of the scriptures. And so when you start approaching man's uh, uh, systems of theology to help explain the scriptures, it does give you a great compass to say to yourself, wait a minute, what that system's proposing doesn't quite line up with this, and what that system proposes doesn't quite line up with this. So for me, in other words, it helped me uh, really to be a Christian in a church uh, that was teaching the Bible, um, even though I, I noted the fact that dispensationalism had an impact, it wasn't a soapbox issue at the, at the church that I was reared in. It was, they taught through the Scriptures, and you could hear at times those dispensational aspects but it wasn't necessarily really forced on us real hard. So we were left as Christians to study our Bibles and, and, and try to navigate through these things. And then I was introduced to the 1689. And upon seeking to study the doctrines in the confession a little further, I was forced to start drilling down into the principles and underlying structure of covenant theology, which is in chapter 7. I had to drill down in it as a system and better become acquainted with how it in and impacts the rest of the doctrines horizontally in the Bible because I could see that it would have major impact. And so think about what time this frame this is. This is around between 2007 and 2009. And the majority of the sources that I could find on covenant theology, whether in print or online, they were at that time mostly written by Presbyterians. Now, at that time, the things that I acquired to begin to learn about this other framework which I perceived could have answers, was by Presbyterians was A, because of my ignorance of the early English particular Baptists in a large part. B, my ability to acquire any of their writings on any of these issues. And C, here in my own little circle amongst Baptists in Indiana, I, there wasn't any Reformed Baptist Fellowship. And so I didn't have, I didn't have knowledge of people calling themselves Reformed Baptists, per se. I didn't have knowledge that, I don't even know, Brother Bob, if you even had a church in 2008, did you? See, I didn't know Bob Bowles had a church called Providence Reformed Baptist. I didn't know Pastor Dennis Clark, Cameron, you know, you weren't on the scene yet either, you know what I'm saying? So I didn't even know this stuff, and so I began to read the Presbyterians' writings on covenant theology. Now, I'm going to admit, at this time in my Christian walk, um, I knew very little about what Presbyterians believed. And so, I started to read their writings on covenant theology. In fact, it was at this point, I was so shaken up by what I was discovering in the Baptist Confession and how that it was pointed to covenant theology. And I hear other people talking about covenant theology and seeing that, oh, the Presbyterians mostly articulate covenant theology and they must be the experts on covenant theology. I remember going into those waters and praying to the Lord, Lord, I've always identified as a Baptist 
But I want to go into this being open and teachable by your Spirit and your Word to what is the truth. And if it leads me into some directions that perhaps challenge my former traditions understanding, Lord, I want, to, I want you to lead me in the truth. And I remember praying that as I'm beginning to read Presbyterians, you know, these, these forbidden people to ever read in, in the Baptist circles that I come from. And so my journey begins in covenant theology by studying the Presbyterian fathers. And as I studied, immediately I was so blessed. I was so tremendously blessed to learn from these men the different contours of redemptive history through the various covenantal arrangements that are all throughout Scripture, beginning with what covenant theology identifies as the covenant of works. And this is just that arrangement in the Garden of Eden between God and Adam, technically speaking. This is the covenant of works. And then they went on to explain how these Old Testament covenants, working together, bring about the new covenant. Okay, And so I'm looking at this, I'm like, wow, this, is, this just answers so many questions for me. Of course, there's one redemptive story, and God's communicating through these covenants this redemptive plan, and this is a story. Of course, I thought to myself, this is how I read my Bible. Our first father, Adam, disobeyed God in the garden, and then he subsequently, what, spiritually and physically died? We all inherited that same spiritual, physical death. And the Lord Jesus Christ, He's not going to leave us in this wretched mess. He has a plan That plan, uh, this predestinated plan to rescue fallen humanity. And covenant theology has a name. It's described as the covenant of redemption. And so I'm getting these theological terms applied to what I knew to be true in Scripture. And light bulbs were going off. And I was so excited to, to be learning all of these new things. And when I saw these terms, I just didn't blindly accept them. I didn't just say, oh yeah, covenant redemption, okay, yeah, that's a valid technical, or that's a valid theological term, I can accept it. No, brothers, the covenant of redemption, this is what I saw in Psalms chapter 2. Isaiah 53, what about the Gospel of John, the Trinity all together working what? To bring about the salvation and implement the plan of rescuing mankind from out of sin and misery. The covenant of redemption, like the Trinity, isn't spelled out in book and a book and a verse of the Bible, but it is a valid theological concept. It was the Bible. I, I, I totally was in agreement with it. Now, this covenant of redemption, as the Presbyterian fathers would be further articulate, it was worked out in time, space, and history, and oftentimes they delineated that from its enactment in history with the term covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace was that by which God condescended down to man and makes known His provisions of salvific grace available through His promised and His His provided Messiah. And so, while this inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption, depending on who you read, remember the nuances in any system of theology, was agreed upon, and then in time, space, and history, God begins to make this known to man, they would call this the covenant of grace. Okay, so it's a, a, a theological way of understanding how God's relating to man to make known to them the revealed gospel, the promised and provided Messiah. Now, listen to these definitions of this biblical concept from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's some of the most precise, technical, well-defined theology in all of Christendom. Listen to how they say it. This is from the the larger catechism, question 30. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? The answer, God does not leave all men to perish in a state of sin and misery into which they fell 
by the breach of the first covenant, the covenant of works, i.e., commonly called the covenant of works, but of his mere love and mercy delivers his elect out of it and brings them into a state of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. That's gospel, isn't it? It's technically defined gospel. Now I want you to notice something here in that answer because I'm going to be coming back to it in a minute. When they say in this, by God's mere love and mercy, He delivers His elect out of sin and misery and brings them into a state of salvation, that right there is the substance. You could say that's the marrow of the covenant of grace. That's the marrow. Old uh, theologians would say that's the, the matter that's the substance of the gospel right there, isn't it? Keep that in your, in your thought. The substance of the covenant of grace is this. Ill-deserving sinners saved by the pure mirror, it says, love and mercy of God to save them out of their sins and misery. Well, question 31, with whom was the covenant of grace made? Listen to this, another important answer that further clarifies this biblical concept. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all of his elect as his seed. Right there's an important aspect because it's identifying that the substance of this covenant is only mediated through Christ, right, as the head of the covenant. Wonderful theology, biblical theology. Uh, our only intercessor, read Isaiah 59, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Question 32, how is the grace of God manifested in this covenant? And here's where the rubber's getting a little close to the road of what y'all want to hear today. How is this grace of God manifested in the second covenant? The grace of God is manifested in the covenant of grace in that He freely provides and offers to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by Him. And requiring faith as the condition of their interest, you could say their share, their ownership in Him, promised and giveth His Holy Spirit to all His elect to work in them that faith that all other saving graces, I'm sorry, with all other saving graces, and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which He hath appointed them to salvation. All of that's gospel. All of it's gospel. That's why many of the early Reformed writers took that and would come up with definitions of the covenant of grace in more of a simple form. But listen when they come up with their own definitions based on this body of divinity known as the larger catechism. Notice in their their definition how they take that substance of the covenant of grace and the mediator of the covenant of grace, and in their definitions, they're amplifying Christ in their definitions. They're amplifying the gospel. It's crucial before we move forward, okay? Because... These are the streams that our English particular Baptist forefathers would have agreed with. They're, real, they're reared in these churches that are using these concepts and these understandings and these frameworks to understand God's dealing with sinful man. Uh, Patriarch of the Puritans, William Perkins, he says, the covenant of grace is a compact made between God and man, touching reconciliation and life everlasting by Christ. Amen. See, the point to Christ, the head who is the very substance of the covenant of grace. Francis Turretin, likewise, speaks of the covenant of grace as a gratuitous pact between God, the offended, and man, the offender, entered into in Christ, in which God promises to man freely on the account of Christ, you hear the unconditionality of this, remission of sin and salvation in man, 
relying on the same grace, promises, faith, and obedience. Herman Switzius, to end with this, he says, defines the covenant of grace as an agreement between God and the elect sinner, God declaring His free goodwill concerning eternal salvation and everlasting, uh, uh, and, and, and everything related to it, sorry, free to be given to those in covenant by and for the sake of the mediator Christ and man consenting to that goodwill by sincere faith. And I know some of you already hung up on that definition perhaps. So, I see all this, right? And I say, aha, the covenant of grace. Yes, it is the way to understand the eternal design of God enacted in time, space, and history of Him saving His people through the mediator, Jesus Christ, apart from their own law keeping and apart from their own righteousness. This is gospel. In other words, covenant theology up until this point, I saw clearly followed what I knew to be true in the Bible, which was a very clear distinction between law and gospel. This is what covenant theology presented. And that distinction for the sake and the purity of the gospel itself was always to be carefully maintained and articulated, I notice, in their writings. The law-gospel distinction. And so, as I mentioned earlier, you can just imagine light bulbs turning on in my spiritual mind regarding the entire scope and panoramic view of God's eternal plan for His people in Christ as I contemplated the Father, Son, and Spirit agreeing to save the fallen sons of Adam through the gospel by grace alone and faith alone. Covenant theology is the best point, I'm convinced, of how to understand redemptive history and God's method of saving sinners. And so it answered some of the plaguing questions that I had of who were the people of God. Simple. It was the one true people of God throughout all of redemptive history. Those who have been made part of His family through the mediator, the object of all saving faith. The answer is simple. It ought to be simple who the people of God is, right? How are they saved? Simple. They're saved by faith. Faith in what? The object of the substance of grace, Christ. Whether they knew His name or they didn't know His name, they're looking to the promised Messiah. We look back to the named Messiah, don't we? Named Jesus Christ, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. So the people of God is one. And the plan of how to become a person or child of God is one by faith. And what is all of their eternal destiny, which I thought the dispensation was unnecessarily complicated? It's simple. We all get to go to a place we don't know a whole lot about, but we know it's really good, called heaven. So covenant theology just followed the simple contours of the scripture. And I thought, this has got to be it. In other words, the covenant of grace, I saw, gave everything necessary For life and salvation because it gives us Christ. It points to Christ. The covenant of grace shows the wonderful unity of the Bible with Christ's redemptive work as its scope and overall historical purpose. No longer do I have to hear interpretations where Christ's work, the apple of His eye, the church, the elect before the foundation of the world is is not the main thrust of all of historical Theology. It's not the main thrust of all historical purposes of God. No, it's the only thrust of, of why He has enacted right this, this whole drama that we're seeing unfold, that He could demonstrate His grace on that great day of His church, these ill-deserving sinners who have been forgiven. So at least at this point, I was convinced that covenant theology was the best system and framework to understand redemptive history for parish sinners. Now, at this point, I began to think If the Presbyterians had been so correct, so accurate and faithful 
in handling these aspects of Scripture and uh, redemptive history. You know, perhaps I need to give them a sincere and honest hearing as to the whole matter of why they baptize infants. Infants who themselves as babies can't express faith at all. Perhaps, I thought, through the covenants and covenant theology, I would discover that I had drastically missed something related to the whole issue of Christian baptism. And again, as earlier, I went to the Lord. And I said, Lord, this is uncomfortable for me, but these men have clearly defended the truth of your word on this issue of who your people are, how they become your people, and what their destiny are as your people. And perhaps they're right on the thing that I seem at this point, this is the only thing that divides me from them. Christian baptism. So I went into prayer. Lead me in the truth. Well, I began to study their polemics, their writings of why they specifically baptize infants. And I quickly discovered how closely the Presbyterians aligned their reasoning of baptizing infants with their understanding of how the covenant of grace is, as they say, administered through the Old Testament covenants. And when we talk about the Old Testament covenants, we're namely talking about here, not exclusively, but namely the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and the Davidic. So immediately I began to see that they connected it with their covenant theology and how the covenant of grace, as they say, was administered through the Old Testament covenants. In other words, they contend that since God utilized the Old Testament covenants, Abraham, Mosaic, Davidic, to appropriate Take the substance, set it aside for a special use. He used the Old Testament covenants to appropriate the substance of grace and to administer it, the substance of grace, through faith. Then those Old Testament covenants themselves are the covenant of grace being administered in different forms throughout history until the time of the new covenant. That's how they identified it. Since God is utilizing those Old Testament covenants to administer the substance of grace. Therefore, those covenants themselves are the covenant of grace. This comes through clearly in the larger catechism, question 34. How was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? I'm going to say just a brief word about administer because sometimes this language causes us to not understand people's uh, position, what they're saying. Uh, But this is what they're saying, and this is what the definition of the word administer carries with it dispensing of something, a distribution of something, as administering, dispensing of justice, uh, administering, dispensing of a sacrament, or, according to 1828 Webster Dictionary, administering or dispensing of grace. So that's how they're using it. How was the covenant of grace administered, dispensed under the Old Testament? The covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament, by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which did all for signified Christ then to come, and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they then had, through the Messiah, full remission of sin and eternal salvation. As I began to search these things out, was that true? I saw that 
as I'm becoming now introduced, when you start studying covenant theology and you start really trying to dig deep, you're going to eventually run into other Baptists who are studying it. And then they will tell you, oh, you've got to read Nehemiah Cox. Who's Nehemiah Cox? And you've you, you got to read, you know, go, go listen to Dr. James Renahan. And you start, who's that? And you start figuring out, oh, the, the particular Baptist had some view on this, right? And so I did start becoming more acquainted with them. And now we're going to get to a moment of why the particular Baptist helped me to see that I didn't have to abandon covenant theology, or I didn't have to become a paedo-baptist in order to adhere to covenant theology. And while the, Presby- while the uh, Presbyterians, no, while the particular Baptist agreed that yes, the substance of the covenant of grace, it was appropriated, and yes, it was administered to the elect by faith, through these Old Testament covenants with their various ordinances, the ordinances of circumcision, the Passover, the sacrificial lamb. Brethren, you guys, I, I pray, know this from your study of the book of Hebrews. Those were visible gospel messages, right? And we have, a, we have another visible gospel message we do, some of us, every Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper. It's a visible gospel message. So our English particular Baptist forefathers, they would have agreed that yes, the covenant of grace, faith, Christ, faith in Christ, was administered through those visible gospel typifications. But listen, they did not necessitate that, that affirmation of that. It didn't, it didn't necessitate that when the gospel, the substance of the covenant of grace, was revealed or it was communicated in shadowy forms within these Old Testament covenants, that such a revelation of the gospel automatically placed that Old Testament covenant in the category of being considered the covenant of grace itself. Now this is significant because it horizontally impacts many of the doctrines and practices in the life of the church. They said it's not necessary to say the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. Just because the gospel is administered through the Old Testament covenant called the Abrahamic covenant, doesn't mean you have to, it doesn't require you to say that that's the covenant of grace. Up until this point, our English particular Baptist forefathers, those at least who would have signed the 1689 Baptist Confession, would have used it largely to govern their doctrines and their, and their preaching. They would have agreed with all of these previous positions that we've been noting about covenant theology, which they're Presbyterian and they're uh, 17th century independent congregationalist brethren held to. Up into the spine, they would have loved, like we love, the definition of the covenant of grace in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Perfect theology. They would have been, been in agreement with that. However, here at this point, they would not view the Old Testament covenants as actually being the covenant of grace. For to do so would create a conflict in their biblical theology, namely this, which you probably may already sense. It created a conflict by placing temporal law-based covenants. When I say law-based, I mean covenants that have a do this and live, a works principle in them. They saw we cannot place a law-based covenant next to the substance of the covenant of grace and say that they are the same, that they are essentially equal. This zeal to clearly delineate the boundaries of law and gospel with regards to the Old Testament covenants did not in any way make the particular Baptist complacent to the importance of a robust commitment to the proper usefulness of God's moral law 
While confessionally affirming that the moral law of God remained a universal obligation for all mankind as a rule of life, read chapter 19 of their confession in 1689, with respect to covenant theology, wherever there existed an Old Testament covenant that was accompanied with punishments, with cursings, or use Bible language, breaking off of its members due to their failure and disobedience, the particular Baptists were unwilling to allow that covenant, categorically speaking, to be called or understood as the covenant of grace. So this, I believe, is one of their first valuable contributions to reformed covenant theology that helped me to see that, you know what, I'm not comfortable with putting law covenants in the category of the covenant of grace with the definition of what the substance of the covenant of grace is. So I found myself agreeing with the particular Baptists on that point. Oh, they, they're right. They're careful. They're careful to maintain that law gospel distinction. And I recognize this as a very valuable contribution. It wasn't exclusive to the particular Baptist. And in fact, when I say all of these things that, yeah, it was a contribution, I'm saying in the sense from my research and my study that while there were other men, even within the Reformed tradition, who would have been articulating some of these nuances themselves, they would have been careful to be fencing and guarding the law gospel distinction, not comfortable with ever saying that the old covenants were part of the covenant of grace, other men outside of the particular Baptist. I'm just saying that the particular Baptists are the ones who uh, most ably, polemically defended it and articulated it. And so in that sense, their contribution was a little bit more significant. This approach to understanding the covenants allowed, listen, A, continuity among the Old Testament and the New Testament as the covenant of grace was progressively being revealed throughout all of Scripture. This is the part of covenant theology that I saw answered a lot of questions for me. And B, it naturally alleviated the tension which existed in other models of Reformed covenant theology of oversimplifying or flattening all the Old Testament covenants into the mold of the covenant of grace, and thus you're left with the task of trying to fit the Mosaic covenant in the category of the covenant of grace, and you're stumbling and struggling of trying to get the Scriptures to harmonize with something that they shout from the pages that they don't do. You're you're trying to say that this antithesis that's placed in the law against grace isn't really there, all right? Um, it's, it's like saying that there is no distinct child born of a bondwoman and born of a free woman. That really, they're, they're kind of both the same, and we just have to help understand how uh, that relates to one another. So, rather than binding the covenant of grace strictly to equaling the Old Testament covenants, our particular Baptist forefathers and their contribution to covenant theology, they elevated the covenant of grace above these earthly forms and shadows. And like the author of the book of Hebrews, they argued that no one was ever saved by the Old Testament covenants. But rather, these Old Testament covenants covenants were pointing to a reality which they themselves were inadequate to provide, which was they were pointing to the covenant of grace. They themselves were not the covenant of grace They were pointing to the covenant of grace. They were pointing to grace, the gospel, to Christ, right? Which 
if you get that concept, puts the covenant of grace running parallel in redemptive history alongside the Old Testament covenants. And they're casting, the covenant of grace is casting for the people more light for further steps to take to further understand what God is doing, so forth and so on. With such a dogmatic move, the particular Baptists maintain, listen, in a very simple yet very orthodox way, the purity, at least I'm convinced, they maintained, they aided, they strengthened the purity of the law gospel distinction, which was common to all streams of covenant theology. They made it very unmuddled by doing that. This is rather genius if one takes the time to think about it. Because what it does, on the one hand, is it emphasizes the underlining dogmatic teaching of Reformed covenantalism, which is no one is saved by law. Everyone's only saved by grace. That's an underlining principle. So it unified them within that Reformed covenantal tradition. They're not inventing a new covenant theology, in other words. And it also distanced them for being confused in that century, in that time period they lived in, from the Anabaptists, who were basically saying the Old Covenant has no relevancy in the church anymore. Uh, We're guided just by the New Covenant. That was kind of a a faulty understanding of the Scriptures by the Anabaptists that was being uh, promoted. And then what it did was it strengthened the integrity of the substance that was offered by the Covenant of Grace. The integrity of substance. So, They contributed by um, nuancing a distinction of the law and gospel. Okay, First contribution, very important contribution. And then that equated into them um, protecting, I would say, or strengthening the integrity of the substance. The word integrity carries with it the definition of purity, genuineness, being unadulterated or unimpaired. Remember what the marrow of the substance of the covenant of grace was? It was, out of His mere love and mercy, God delivers His elect out of sin and misery and brings them into a state of salvation through Christ. By not allowing the Old Testament historical covenants and all those who by mere birth were part of those covenants to be categorically accepted as the covenant of grace and by default then being members within the covenant of grace, the particular Baptists resolved the obvious tension of having members in the covenant of grace who were not the elect and members in the covenant of grace who could eventually fall away or out of covenant relationship with God. So they preserved the integrity of what we say the substance of the covenant of grace is, which is faith alone through Christ alone. If someone is represented by Christ in the covenant of grace... And they have, uh, as a member, an interest in Christ. They can never lose that interest. That's the substance and the integrity, purity of that substance. Brothers, I believe the particular Baptist covenant theology strengthens. Such tension of this mixed membership in the uh, covenant of grace uh, by seeing the Old Testament covenants who had mixed members in it. Some people were of God, of of faith, and some people weren't. Such a tension has over the centuries plagued churches who hold and practice a typical classic Pado-Baptist model of covenant theology. All one has to do, we don't have to have time here to do it, has to do is to examine their history and read of the various attempts to force 
such a mixed membership and understanding in the covenant of grace to conform to the Bible's witness of the nature of the church, which the Bible's witness is, it consists of believers. That is, Christ's elect, who will be preserved to the end by God Himself. The particular Baptist consistently maintained the truth presented in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 31, that the covenant of grace was made with Christ and in Him with all His elect and His seed. Thus, no one who does not possess saving faith can rightly be considered as having an interest or rather a portion or ownership of Christ. This was, I believe, a very valuable contribution that they enunciated in existing, already existing Reformed Covenant theology. Now, not only does it fence the scope and the purpose of the covenant of grace of ever becoming in any way unclear or obscure, but it also greatly avoids the mistake that is found in dispensationalism, which is creating two peoples of God within the covenant of grace. Right? Remember, dispensationalism kind of makes that mistake of, that always troubled me of having two people of God. Right? Well, here I kind of sense that, you know what? The classic model of Presbyterian covenant theology, or you could say Reformed covenant theology, was also creating that same mistake. By making the Old Testament covenants the covenant of grace, and members of those Old Testament covenants thereby being in the covenant of grace, you had people who were saved and people who weren't saved, all having an interest in the covenant of Christ. Interesting. And what I mean is, is that as a necessary consequence of equating the old or equating the covenant of grace with the old testament covenants the presbyterian and independents were forced to begin to articulate a covenant theology that would allow unbelievers to be regarded or people without faith as members within the covenant of grace but only outward lacking its spiritual substance largely their their logic and reasoning can be boiled down to this because under the old testament covenants being the covenant of grace There were those who were by covenant law considered rightful members of the visible covenant community, i.e. Israel. So likewise, the same holds true in this particular administration of the covenant of grace known as the new covenant. If it was true then, there were people who were outwardly members of Israel, but also inwardly having the substance of faith. So it's true in the new covenant era as well. There are people that can be, can be considered in the covenant of grace, who are inwardly truly of the substance, have they have the substance, and then outwardly they themselves, some of them don't have the substance. So there's two categories of people. There's those who have been administered but don't have the substance, and those who have the substance that are the true church. They would argue that in the covenant community, there were outward only members who benefited only in a physical sense, and there were those who by faith were inward members, This is how you can say that both Jacob and Esau were members in the covenant of grace, one outward and one inward. You kind of get it, right? You kind of get the approach. Now, with this oversimplistic view, you begin to see why they largely appeal to covenant theology for justification in giving the new covenant sign of baptism to infants who cannot themselves express faith, much like circumcision in the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was given to boys under the old covenant. You can kind of see why they reason like that. And what I noticed too is I would read the polemical works of the Presbyterians um, about baptism. They almost exclusively built their case on this, on covenant theology. Very, very little, if not anything, is mentioned about the regulative principle. But when I began to read the historic particular Baptists, it was both covenantalism 
and a very nice continuity and harmonization with their theology of the regulative principle. But brothers, let me ask you that are Baptists today, what a far cry that is from today when most of the time you hear a prominent Baptist argue for the Christian baptism, almost all of his points, almost all of his polemics are from the regulative principle, very little of covenantalism. And the Presbyterians still argue in the same way from covenant, from covenant theology. And that ought not to be the case but the, because the particular Baptists, they went into, I don't, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but they went into the arena not with you know one hand tied behind their back. They had the regular principle glove on and they had the covenant theology glove on. Right? And they were using both of these reformed tools to uh, articulate Christian baptism. Well, the particular Baptist acutely perceived that one fatal flaw of flattening or equating the Old Testament covenants with the covenant of grace and thus creating this dual outward and inward membership is that it unnecessarily minimizes... And it is unnecessary. We've already demonstrated. You don't have to call them the covenant of grace. Is that as a consequence, it unnecessarily minimizes the reality of what Paul taught in the book of Galatians. They saw that clear as day. You can't do this. It was in Galatians where Paul taught that through the gospel of Christ, the substance and the benefit of the covenant of grace, a person is engrafted into the true vine despite what earthly covenant arrangement they were part of. And remember, Paul was trying to always get the Jews to see that. It doesn't matter you got the sign of circumcision. You still don't have this. You still are not in the covenant of grace. You don't have the substance of grace. You need to be born again. And so they saw that they saw that by creating this dual membership in the covenant of grace, it unnecessarily minimized the truth and the distinction of who truly is the church of Christ, who truly does have the substance of grace, and that is those who are born again. The particular Baptist would also stress that a mixed membership view of the covenants also obscured the clarity of what was promised by the prophets who someday would, uh, would someday occur in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ and his apostle confirmed was actually being accomplished. And what promises this? Well, namely from Jeremiah 31 was from Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenants that I made with their fathers. I will put my law in their inward parts. Here's the application of the substance. And write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now what's interesting about this particular prophecy, brothers, as many of you already know this, is that this prophecy from Jeremiah is used by the author of the book of Hebrews in chapters 8, verses 8 through 12, as referring to the new covenant. Which, in part is why the 1689 particular Baptist would prefer, if we're going to equate the covenant of grace, understanding the integrity of its substance, if we're going to equate it with any biblical covenant, we're going to equate it with the new covenant. Not any historical Old Testament covenant. And this was, I believe, their third valuable contribution to Reformed covenant theology, maintaining a balanced biblical typology they had i believe enunciated a better law gospel distinction they preserved that they maintained that line that boundary they i believe contributed by articulating um, a a better way of uh, preserving the integrity of the substance of the covenant of grace by who is actually a member of the covenant of grace and then lastly i believe that their last contribution was maintaining a balanced biblical typology. So let me explain that, and then we'll be done. Biblical typology 
I don't think anyone who seriously studies the scriptures would deny that it exists and that it's employed. And uh, the reason is, is because just for short, we know that the apostles frequently help us to understand this and the, uh, their teachings. They help us to understand the Old Testament through typology. Uh, for example, the flood of Noah's day, we know in 1 Peter, is used as an example to give us some kind of understanding of baptism. So you get the point here. And a type in Scripture is a person or a thing in the Old Testament that is pointing forward to an anti-type. Okay? So the circumcision was pointing forward to something other than what it really was. True? It's pointing to the prophets would say a circumcised heart. Scripture itself identifies several Old Testament events in Scripture as being types of Christ's redemption. Many of you already probably have heard in your churches, many of these types your pastor has told you were types pointing to Jesus, such as the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the Passover. And if time permitted, we could go to Hebrews 9 and we could look and unpack how the entire sacrificial system was a type of, pointing to a different reality. All of this typology is important because it was the particular Baptists' biblical typology of how they specifically and, I would argue, successfully distinguished the covenant of grace from the earthly national conditional covenants made with Abraham, Moses, and David through typology is how they distinguished it successfully and specifically. They allowed a balanced biblical typology to, dem- to demonstrate exactly what is stated in Hebrews 10.4 where it says, and I don't know what conversations we were having this morning, but this come up. It is not possible, the scripture says, that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So, <laughs> understanding that, they would say that through typology, we know that these types the blood, the bulls, the goats, which were contained in the Old Testament covenants as laws and ordinances were pointing to an anti-type, which was Christ. And thus, it is not only a philosophical fallacy, but it's also a theological error to conclude that a type is in essence also the anti-type. You can't do that. Going back to the distinction of not allowing the Old Testament covenants to be considered the covenant of grace because the Old Testament covenant had a law works principle to it. And just because it pointed to the covenant of grace, you can't make it the covenant of grace. It is a type pointing outside of itself to the anti-type. So don't make the type equal with what it's pointing to. The Abrahamic covenant contained many types and shadows, including but not limited to circumcision, land promises, offspring, all of which pointed outside of itself to a greater reality, a spiritual reality that was only available in the covenant of grace. And thus the Abrahamic covenant cannot rightfully then be considered the anti-type, the covenant of grace itself, just a covenant pointing toward the covenant of grace. With such theological precision, the particular Baptists were enabled to utilize biblical typology to locate the promises of the covenant of grace within the various Old Testament covenants without making the, it's unnecessary. You don't have to make the unnecessary fallacy 
of equating any one particular Old Testament covenant with the covenant of grace. And by our forefathers doing this, they A, satisfied the contours of continuity and discontinuity that we all see in our Bibles when we read our Bibles between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They accomplished that. They satisfied what we see clearly in Scripture. And B, they provided a clearer articulation of the application of the substance of the covenant of grace that I would argue was ever hitherto provided. Now before I end with my conclusion, brothers, I'm convinced that because we were talking about it before we came here, before, because of a largely social political atmosphere at the time, these very valuable nuances of an existing covenant theology were not given their fair hearing in the marketplace of ideas amongst scholars and the scholastics. Namely because, not that they didn't recognize them as well as being valued, because like I said, there was other men, eminent men, eminent theologians, I said that you would know them. They were articulating some of these nuances too. But because the particular Baptist took it to the next logical conclusion of Reformation with regards to a treasured sacrament of infant baptism, I believe that it was largely put on the shelf. It was largely seen as something that was dangerous. Uh, We can't seriously begin to talk about this. Uh, One brother at breakfast this morning was talking about triage theology. I've never really heard these concepts, but you know, like what's the first thing you do when someone comes into the emergency in the ER? Well, you got to get them to stop bleeding. Okay, let's handle that first. And then, you know, well, think about the 17th century. We don't have time to go into it. There were so many uh, unrestful social issues going on. You know, they had to have stability and unity, you see. And brothers, I think we're at a point now that within the Reformed community, that these um, contributions that were made by our English particular Baptist forefathers need to be given a fair hearing. They need to be brought out and laid on the table by the Reformed community. Uh, They need to be examined. And if there's things that are missing and they're not entirely lined up with the Scripture, so be it. And why can't the other uh, brothers in the Reformed community pray the same prayer that I prayed, you know, and say, Lord, I just want to be open to the truth. If it means I have to give up a treasured practice or tradition, so be it. But I just want to I just want to hear the truth. I hear more in um, the reform chatterbox sphere of mischaracterizations of reform Baptist covenant theology, much of what I've articulated here, than I do really interacting with what was said and, and the principles of what our theology is. And I'd like to hear more interaction of you know, what we actually are saying and how we're using the same reform tools of hermeneutics to get there and how and where we are wrong. So, my conclusion. One of the most important things that I want you to take away from in this talk is that the hermeneutical methods and the tools of biblical interpretation which our early English particular Baptist forefathers who were... Um, part of creating and afterwards affirmed the 1689 Baptist Confession. The tools that they utilized were not those of the continental Anabaptists, but rather those found within the traditions that they were reared in, the Reformed tradition. These men were from English puritanical stock of the nonconformist strand, and by and large, they and other notable Reformed theologians were contributing to the system of covenant theology 
which they did not need, felt needed to be abandoned, but needed to be nuanced and further refined to better conform it to the witness of Scripture and fully appreciate Scripture's continuities and discontinuities. Oftentimes, at least I perceive it, the individuals rush far too quickly in categorizing the biblical covenants as either a covenant of works or a covenant of grace. And in order, they do this to try to construct very quickly a system which is going to support their treasured practice or tradition within the church. Brothers, this is not the spirit of reformation. The spirit which our, our particular Baptist forefathers has was semper reformanda, always reforming. And thus they picked up their quills. They mounted their pulpits at a great cost and sacrifice to defend these truths that were once and for all delivered unto the saints. Uh, read our particular Baptist forefathers through history. They're, they're becoming more available. Um, you know, you, you could go to prison for saying some of the things that they said. Uh, you could be uh, executed for some of the things that they would say. And it cost these men dearly to do this. Dear brethren, we have a precious, a deeply theological and biblical heritage as covenantal particular Baptists, i.e. today modern day Reformed Baptists. And may the Lord bless us, brothers, and help us in becoming more historically sensitive to this heritage, and not for the sake of just idolizing history, not just for the sake of some lofty theology, but rather it would do for us what it did for these brothers, that it would create within us blood in our veins that would spill out in a life of piety, of love toward Christ, the substance of this covenant who grafted us all into that covenant and give us a deeper commitment to the truth and His church. Why do I encourage you, brother, with that? Because I know, like me, you're laboring in a small church. And so do these men. It would have been very easy for them to say, Ah, why quibble over these nuances? Why, why strive so much over splitting of such little hairs? Because they wanted to preserve the integrity of the substance of grace. And anything that dared reproach that, what did they do? They defended the truth as they understood it. May God help us do the same. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, um, just for so many things. You are high in lifted up. You are so glorious. Uh, Lord, you are the God of all redemptive history. You are the sovereign one. You are the one, uh, Lord, as we identify today, that out of your mere love and your mere mercy, that you rescued us, your sons, out of sin and misery. And so we worship you. We fall before your throne of grace now in the name of thy son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we bow in great humility, knowing that apart from your amazing grace, O God, we would still be blind, lost, hardened sinners against your loving truth. God, I pray that as we walk away from here today, uh, examining just a lot of different technical little nuances and things of theology, that we, as I said, just truly appreciate what you have done in your church and through men, Lord, who were faithful to the truth and zealous to protect the distinctions of law, gospel, the purity of, uh, of grace and grace alone by faith alone and the nature of in the character of your church. All of these things, Lord, just have a lot of practical implications on a local church level. And I pray that you would help us to take all of this and, uh, Lord, use it in a very practical way in our families and in our labors at our local church levels. And be with us, Lord, uh, as a Reformed Baptist community. Help us to grow in these truths. And I pray, if anything, 
Uh, Lord, for I know we got some men amongst us who may not be entirely convinced of certain aspects that we've covered today. Uh, I hope and pray that they at least sense that these early English particular Baptists and also modern-day Reformed Baptists, uh, while wanting to be precise about theology, we mostly want to be precise about the truth of God's word and the Christ of that word. We, we love you, Christ, and we want to live for you, and we just want to make sure that we're handling the substance of your, your precious grace to us the right way. Uh, be with us and help us in all of our spheres of labor. We ask this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.